Church, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to do something today that we do not often do, but it is something that the church is commanded to do. It's something that we are responsible to do, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, we have, uh, if you came this morning, you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we printed the passage that we're working with today inside the bulletin, so you can also, if you want to follow along with us to know what we're doing, we kind of work our way through scripture as we gather here this morning. Uh, as I start, I want to talk to you about the history of the transfer of ideas in the world. Um, like uh, for much of history, for a very, very, very long time, the way that ideas got transferred and passed around in the world was through word of mouth. Right, so, so people, uh, they, there were special gathering places inside of towns where people would gather together to either hear people have a discussion or they would hear somebody stand up and proclaim something, right, to, to share an idea. And that's kind of how ideas got spread. In fact, kings, they would hire these people called heralds. And heralds, their literal job was to stand out in the town square and to repeat the same message over and over and over again to ensure that everybody in the town was able to know what the message was and that they could like, you know, be responsible for the things that the king had said. So that was how much of uh, information, ideas, was transferred for a large part of history. And then in the 1450s, something uh, amazing happened. Uh, a guy named Johannes Gutenberg, uh, he adapted a piece of Chinese technology and developed the printing press. Uh, so, so he uh, took this printing press and now was able to, uh, you know, Bibles were among the first things that were printed on the printing press, was able to transfer ideas. And so now you have kind of two uh, means of transferring ideas. You have books, right, papers and uh, newspapers and all this stuff. You have that as a, a means of mass uh, getting information out. And then you also have word of mouth. And, and, and along with this, you have the increase in literacy education that's kind of also happening at the same time. So, uh, so for what it's worth, then uh, basically, you still had ideas kind of transferring from town to town to town, because uh, paper can only transfer as fast as the person who carries it, right? And so what you get is you still get people who uh, go and carry ideas from one place to another to another, right? They're, they're carrying the ideas with them. So this is, by the way, how you get somebody like, uh, you guys remember The Music Man, right? There's, a, there's this uh, play, The Music Man, you get Harold Hill, and Harold Hill comes along, and uh, you know, what does he do? Well, he goes into the town square, and he says, hey, you know what, you got trouble right here in River City with capital T, that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. And so, uh, so Harold Hill, what does he do? He creates a felt need in, in the city, in the town that he's in, he develops this felt need, and then he says, well, you know what? I have a solution for that felt need. And if you buy the thing that I am offering you, this will create the solution. And so then people would buy this thing, and then before they could realize that they were being scammed, Harold Hill had left and gone on to the next town to go and scam the next town. And he was traveling faster than word could get around that he was actually going around and scamming people. And this is like this 
they made that because it was a thing that happened, right? That, that was something that actually happened. So you could end up, you would be in one town and there would be ideas there and you could go to another town and you would find that the people in the second town had never heard of some of the ideas that the people in the first town had heard of. It's amazing. It's like a crazy world. Okay, so then uh, in the 1890s, 1890s you have radio. Radio comes around and then uh, you, you get people who are actually like by the 1920s, like most people have a radio in their house, right? And so you get, uh, now you have this opportunity for kind of mass transfer of ideas pretty quickly, right? You get, uh, the uh, and during World War II, you get the fireside chats, right? You can have the president talking to Americans all around the world, right? So, so that kind of takes place. And then... Um, then entertainment becomes its own industry, right? The theater moves from the theater to your living room, right? You can listen and engage. But what that means is that you don't just have one person using the mass communication. You now have multiple agencies with differing agendas using the mass communication, right? So, so you have kind of an entertainment industry and you have a news industry and you have government, right? And all of these people have agendas for things that they want to communicate. And then you get television, right? Which is kind of, we can now see the things are being shown to us. And then you get internet. And now, every person with a phone line and a computer can transfer ideas from where they are to where anyone else is instantaneously. And then you get social media, right? You start. You started with uh, Facebook posts, and then, but you can repackage it and make it smaller. And you could take an idea and kind of put it in the briefest, most misunderstandable words possible, uh, and turn it into a tweet. Right? Then you get tweets, and then you get TikToks where you make short videos and uh, spread those out to people. And now, like you have people, like literally, at no other point in history could the average person pick up a device. And then use that device to take an idea that's in their head and get it to tens or hundreds or thousands or millions of people in an instant. It's never been able to happen before in history. So that, that presents us with two realities. Number one, never before have human beings had more opportunity to be heard, right? to have people listen to them. And this is, this is helpful for people who feel like, oh, gosh, I don't have anybody to listen to me. I don't have anybody who understands my perspective. Now I can find people who understand me and understand my perspective. And that's really important. And that's really helpful for some people. But the second thing that it means is that never before in history have individual human beings had more ideas that we need to sift through. It's not, like at no other point, like not, I mean, the, the New Testament writers were trying to teach people how to take apart ideas and that kind of stuff. We deal with far more ideas today, like individual people deal with far more ideas today than, uh, than people in the first century had to deal with. And so this presents a, a particular challenge when Christians have a call to do what First Peter chapter 5 says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Right? The average Christian is exposed to more misleading voices and perspectives than they ever have been. And so myself, Pastor Don, your elders, we have actually been given a responsibility 
to shepherd and to oversee a, a local church. And so what that means is that, number one, it means that we have responsibility for ensuring that we exercise right practice of the faith in this place. But it also means that we give you tools for right thinking in this place as well. And so uh, we do that so that you are able to deal with the massive number of ideas that are constantly coming at you. So to this end, that's why we are in uh, week two of a series called Demonic Schemes. Demonic Schemes. This is a a seven-week series that we're doing. It's built to give us grounding to discern the work of the forces of evil so that we can expose the unfruitful works of darkness so that we can know how we ought to be praying. And by the way, we have a prayer meeting this Wednesday. I'd like to invite you to come out to that uh, because it is the power of God that is needed to defeat the work of the enemy. It's nothing that we can uh, kind of build up on our own. It's nothing that we can achieve on our own. We rely on his power to do his work. So I'd like to invite you out to our prayer meeting this Wednesday at 6.30. This is so that we can know the kinds of solutions that we ought to be seeking and so that we can understand actually whose power is needed to carry out the responsibilities that we've been given. So these, uh, the first two weeks, they were focused on kind of helping us figure out what to do with ideas that are transferred by demons. So last week we looked at a strong delusion, a strong delusion out in the world, kind of lies that are told outside of the church, out in the world, people who don't believe and think, believe in Jesus and the things that they are inclined to believe, right? And why, uh, what those things are trying to accomplish. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, I'd encourage you to go to our website, renovateus.org, and you can go to our media page, and you will be able to find last week's sermon there. But this week, we are looking at demon doctrines or demon heresies, things that the forces of darkness seek to teach inside churches, in order to lead people away from faith. That's what they're trying to accomplish. So, along those lines, let's get to it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So let me translate As we get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus, here is what the Holy Spirit says will certainly happen to Christians. There will be people who professed faith in Jesus who will abandon the true gospel. Right, so why do they do this? How does this happen? Well, they do it because they will give their devotion to ideas that have been crafted by demons. What they will do is they will, they will essentially decide that demonic lesson plans are preferable and better for them than the true gospel is. And they will follow insidious forces into falsehood. So what are those lesson plans and ideas that are crafted specifically for professing Christians? They are, uh, and this is a word that we use, I don't use it frequently up here, but it's important for us to understand this word. The word is heresy. These ideas are heresy. Heresy is any false idea that subverts an essential of the gospel. All right, so it's like this. Um, three plus two equals five. Is that right? I'm, I'm not, is it right that three plus two equals five? Is that correct? 
Yes, yes. Okay, good. All right, three plus two equals Dave, you scared me, man. I was like, oh, no, is it not right? <laughs> He's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so, uh, so three plus two equals five. That's good. Here's the thing. If I change any one of the variables in that equation, it ceases to be true. Right, so, uh, so if I said, you know, four plus two equals five. Well, I, I've only changed one variable. That's like, that's like 85% correct, right? Like that, that equation is like 85% correct. I'm getting close at least, right? Or uh, how about this? Three minus two equals five. Right? Oh, that, I mean, that doesn't quite work, right? It's a, it seems like it might be more wrong, but again, I've only changed one variable. Or 3 plus 1 equals 5. Again, I, like, I'm just changing one thing. Like if my uh, teacher were grading me, it should not be you get the whole thing wrong, right? I should get like some level of credit for almost getting there, right? That's not how this works, though. That's not how this works. Or 3 plus 2 equals 6. Again, this would be problematic. I change any one of the variables and it's not that like I'm just like, oh, you're almost there. No, it's wrong. It's 100, like 90% right in math is 100% wrong, right? Like that's just how it works. <laughs> and so the most effective heresies, they find one part of the true gospel and they twist it so that the good news, right, that's what gospel means, good news. So that the good news that results is neither good, because it is a corruption of what God has accomplished in Jesus, and it is not news, because you know what is required for something to be news? It has to be true, right? So it's neither good nor news. So now how do these ideas make it into a community of people who profess to know the truth? Uh, Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. In verse 2, it says this. They come through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He's saying the way that these teachings make it into the community of faith is that teachers come in with the intent to teach, but the teachers themselves are actually liars. They have lies with them. Uh, they have insincerity. Now, what is that insincerity referring to? He's saying they will teach things not because they know those things are true, not because they have a desire to glorify God, not because of their own personal conviction. They will teach things because they know that people want to hear what they have to say. They will teach things because they know that people will easily accept the things that they have to say. Or they will teach things because they know that the things that they have to say, if people grab them, they will make those people easier to coerce. That's why these teachers bring these things in. So, so what Paul is essentially saying is, hey, it might seem on the surface like these people have pure motives, right? But remember, we've been talking about discernment, and discernment looks under the surface, right? Discernment doesn't just look at, look at what's on top, it looks under the surface. And underlying their outward persona is an inward intention to feed their own broken desires or the broken desires of the people that they're teaching and to ultimately lead people away from truth about Jesus. 
So let's just kind of distinguish what's happening here with this insincerity. Let's talk about insincere belief. Insincere belief is this. Your desires determine your belief. Conversely, sincere belief is that your belief confronts and changes your desires. Right? So he, he's essentially saying these people are coming here. They don't have the intention of letting what they believe change them. They actually are working from the inside out and saying, well, I really want this. And there's a way for me to get this. If I teach people this, I can give them what they want and I can get what I want for me as well. So Paul says they are insincere liars. And then he says their consciences are seared. Literally, the word is branded. So uh, masters in the first century, there was uh, slave ownership. It was a pretty regular thing in the first century. The way that masters marked ownership of their slaves is that they would brand them. What he's saying is that these liars, their consciences have been marked for ownership by demons. Demons have marked them for ownership. They belong to demons. So... What were these ideas that Paul was concerned about that these were people were bringing into the specific church that he's writing to? So Timothy leads the church in Ephesus, and in verse 3, he's saying, here's the problem in Ephesus. These people, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul is helping Timothy as the pastor in Ephesus identify the particular lie that has started to creep in in that church. Apparently there were people who taught that it was a requirement. Like in order for you to be a true Christian, this is what true Christianity looks like. You need to avoid marriage and you need to avoid certain foods. Like that's what the true expression of Christianity looks like. And Paul goes, huh, that's interesting. Jesus didn't require those things. But somehow, you, teachers, have created unnecessary rules in order to coerce God's people. So now, I want to just tell you this. We're not here to dig into this lie. right? Because this lie is not the particular lie that we're facing today. This is just one lie in one church. But you'll notice in almost every one of Paul's letters, and by the way, in Peter's letters and in John's letters that they're always taking some amount of the space that they have to write to address specific ideas that have crept in to the churches that they're writing to. Right, so uh, remember this. So each city had a different set of popular philosophies that would rise up in those cities. And, And remember how ideas travel, right? Ideas don't travel fast in this time. They travel as fast as people can walk from city to city. And so, uh, So people go from town to town. And so what you would have, essentially, is as the writers of the New Testament would write to different churches, you would find them addressing different kinds of ideas because different cities would have different ideas that rise up. So in Corinth, you had uh, cynicism that was creeping into the church. Now, I'm not going to describe all of these for you. I just want you to know the differences that existed in each place. And in Colossae, you had Gnosticism that was creeping into that church, and Paul had to write to address it. In Galatia, 
you had the Judaizers that had become very influential. And Paul had to write to address them. And then years later, in the same church in Ephesus, you had this thing called docetism, which essentially said that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He was more just like a projection that God sent down from heaven. And, uh, and in Ephesus, uh, you know, they had to address, the, the apostle John had to address that issue. And so these ideas, they, they moved slowly and they gained varying degrees of traction in different places at different times. And the apostles, what they did is every time they saw it, they found it necessary to call it out and address it. So for what it's worth, the lie that Paul is addressing here, like I said, it's not our lie. And because of the time and place that we are living in, we're not actually just dealing with one lie. We're dealing with a multiplicity of them, right? Like they're, they're uh, constantly coming at us. We're dealing with many lies that gain traction in the church. And so like the apostles did, it is crucial for us to identify the heresies that demons have created in attempts to mislead people in the church. So we're going to spend a few minutes examining uh, five common heresies. Now, for what it's worth, this list is not exhaustive. There are more than five. But these are five really common ones that you can find that exist today that professing Christians, we do have inclinations in us to believe these things. So five demonic heresies that Christians are inclined to believe. Number one, God is love means... God wants you to be happy. Right, so we need to create some clarity first. You need to know that God's love for you is not God's permission to you to pursue whatever your heart is set on. Right, God's love to you is God's gracious invitation to you to stop mocking him. Right? It's, it's him extending grace to you and saying, hey, that which you are giving yourself over to, my son died to set you free from, so be free from it. Right? That which you are chasing after, that which you are corrupting, the things that I have called good, I sent my son to die and forgive you for that so that you could find freedom from it. So this lie that God is love means he wants you to be happy, it leads to Many things, right? I mean, and different things in different churches, for what it's worth. So it leads to some churches uh, defying the boundaries of traditional marriage. It leads to some churches affirming behavior that God's word clearly prohibits. It leads to uh, what it does, and this is kind of, it removes repentance as kind of a central activity of the Christian life. Like, nowhere in any of the writings of the scriptures do you get the idea that our repentance is kind of optional if you you don't want to do it. It's not a big deal. You can't read the New Testament and get that idea. It denies the truth that Christians ought to be held accountable to God's word. So Jesus' central message was not, live your truth, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was not, you do you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the antidote, the antidote to this lie is understanding this truth, that God exercises his love to make you holy, not happy, right? Now, we'll come back to the happy thing in just a second, but God exercises his love 
to make you holy. Let me show you this. 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11 says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. What Peter's talking about is he's talking about the things that are gonna happen when Jesus comes back and he comes to judge the living and the dead. This, this kind of, uh, the world is gonna be rocked by this and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Right? The world is going to be laid bare by the coming of Jesus. Everything will be revealed to, to, to show what it has been pointing towards this whole time. And verse 11, he says this to Christians. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Right? The, the point is this. Peter's saying, only that which is holy will stand in the judgment. It's the only thing that's going to stand in the judgment. Now, I have some really good news for you. Christ died to cover you with his blood and make your life holy. Right? That's what he died to do. Uh, to make it so that when the judgment comes, you are able to stand. He gave you something that you could not get on your own. So that you could have a pathway out of God's wrath and into God's life. And the Christian life, in response to that, is not you do you. Right? Because we understand that we have received something so significant that we could not get on our own. The Christian life, in response to that, is a life lived in pursuit of holiness. Because of the holiness that he has already obtained for us. So here's the thing. Some more good news. The more you pursue holiness, the more the Holy Spirit changes your heart so that what makes you holy also will start to make you happy too. So uh, that's the first lie. The second lie is this. Faithful Christians will be healthy and wealthy. This lie, <laughs> it's like, yes, score. This lie does so much harm for multiple reasons. Number one, it permits people who are stricken by poverty to place their hope in the wealth of this world. Number two, it permits the unrighteous to hide behind their supposed generosity. Number three, it causes those who suffer to believe that their suffering must always be the punishment of God towards them. Number four, it worships prosperity and ease of life. And number five, it puts promises in God's mouth that God did not give to Christians. So this is what, this is what these teachers will do. They will go to places in the Old Testament like Psalms and Proverbs and various Old Testament passages. And those are passages that are written about Israel to Israelites, about things that they will experience when they go into God's land and honor God's name in that place. And God says, I will prosper you as you follow my commands and uh, take the land and all of that stuff. And what they do is they take those and they grab them and they transport them to Christians today and say, look, Christians, these promises are for you. Claim them for yourself. And this utterly denies that Jesus implied the main pattern of the Christian life is that you will take up your cross daily 
and follow me. Right? That we walk the pathway of a Savior who suffered for the joy that was set before him. Right? So, so Jesus actually told us to expect persecution and difficulty as we follow him. Not to expect prosperity and ease. So what is the antidote to this? The antidote to this lie is to remember this significant truth. The most faithful Christians are those who have suffered for their faith. Because they have endured trial and tribulation and they have not recanted and they have not given up on Jesus, but they have stayed faithful to Jesus. And I just want to tell you, as American Christians, we should be grateful for the suffering that we have avoided. And we should be laboring in prayer for brothers and sisters around the world who are under a heavy-handed government and under people who are seeking to persecute them and throw them in jail and end their lives because of their faith. We should be laboring in prayer that they would remain firm in their faith. Number three. Another lie that creeps in. Our hope is in gaining and exercising political power. I debated whether or not I would do this one, but we're in an election year, and so I think it's reasonable, right? It is always helpful to challenge this lie. So it doesn't matter what your side of the political aisle is. There are uh, whole swaths of people that believe that the hope for our future will be in gaining and obtaining and exercising political power. But here's how you know that someone is more focused on political power than they are on the gospel. They will advocate the seizing of power by any means necessary. Right, so we, we Christians should not be people who advocate seizing power by any means necessary, right? Like that, that should be off limits for us. That, now, don't mishear me on this. This does not mean that we cannot have political perspectives. This does not mean that we cannot advocate in the political realm. It means that as Christians, that we don't abandon obedience as we do so, right? That we don't abandon walking in the spirit as we do so. So the antidote to this lie is this, to understand that our citizenship is a tool. It's actually a gift to us from God, a tool that we exercise with faithfulness, but that we do not hope in it, right? Governments are temporary. Civic engagement can be a helpful tool. And it is right to lament when governments oppose righteousness. But our eyes are not ultimately fixed on setting the government right. Our eyes are looking to the return of our king. That's what our eyes are looking for. Uh, fourth lie. Heresy. Um, yeah. I'll just tell, tell it to you and then I'll explain myself. So God has given me new revelation. So um, Muslims, Islam, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, many, many, many small, small cults, they are de- deviations of biblical teaching. 
right, of things that are said clearly in the Bible, and they take one piece of it, and they twist it to their own ends. And in and and most of them, you will hear a story about a supernatural experience that the people who started these ideas had, right, about how they had this encounter with an angelic being, or that how they had this encounter with one that they believed to be the Holy Spirit. Um, and as we look under the surface, we can go, oh, that angel was a demon, right? That angel was actually one who was seeking to mislead you and tell you something false so that you could then take that falsehood and spread it to many people. So, uh, so most recently, I heard about a new translation of the Bible, um, and one person translated Okay, that's the first red flag. One person making a translation is just like, oh, I don't know. Okay, so uh, one person translated it. And now before, before I knock it, I want to tell you that I have not read it. So I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what the name of it is. I don't even know if I know the name of it. I just heard the story, right? So uh, here's how the translation developed. This one guy claims that an angel t- came to him and the angel touched him on the forehead. And that when the angel touched him on the forehead, he gained supernatural insight into a better translation of Greek and Hebrew words. So he's saying, you know what? We know Greek and Hebrew really well in our culture, but an angel came to me and he showed me how to translate Greek and Hebrew better than anybody else. And so now what he has done is he has built this translation. He says, my translation is more authoritative because I have the best understanding of the Greek and Hebrew words. And if you hear anybody saying anything like that, it should set off alarm bells for you, right? It should just be telling you, like, look out for this. So uh, what is the antidote to this? The antidote is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If it's new, it is not true. If it's true, it is not new. Uh, Galatians 1.8. Paul gives a warning to the Galatian church. He's pleading with them. He's barely started writing his letter, by the way. This is like just in the first words of his letter. And he's pleading with them. And he's saying, even if we... So he's saying, listen, like you've received the truth. And if we come back to you and say something else, or an angel from heaven, right... I mean, it's no accident that we see these corruptions of truth coming from people who claim to have had interaction with angels. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's worth saying that Holy Spirit does reveal things and give words of knowledge and give words of wisdom but Holy Spirit does not update the gospel. Holy Spirit does not give a new gospel. And if a spirit is doing that, it is a different kind of spirit. And that's why if you ever get words like this, you get somebody saying, I I think the Lord has something to say to you. You always test it. You test it against the word of God. You test it against your experience. You see, you test it against the counsel of other people, right? Because uh, you want to hold these kinds of things with an open hand and say, okay, yeah, maybe the Lord could speak to me through that. But we always use scripture as our first measure. Okay. Fifth lie. Heaven is God's reward for your good works. So a spirit of religion or American religiosity will lead people to a place of believing that it is our responsibility to earn our place in heaven. 
So I go to the church and I give to the poor and I hold the door for people and I support the right causes and I go to the right services and I pray the right prayers at the right times to make sure that I put in the work so that God can check me off when I walk before God in heaven. Right? To, to get God to sign off on my entry into heaven. The problem is that we somehow think that our good works can outweigh the wrong that we've done. Like we start thinking like that. Do you know what this is called? It's called self-righteousness. Here's what God thinks of self-righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. By the way, that's a kind translation. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So the antidote to this thinking is believing the truth that eternal life is God's gift to those who believe in Jesus. It is a gift. It is given to you freely. There is nothing that you can do to earn it. The moment that you think that God owes you something, you are lifting yourself up in pride before a holy God. We come before him humbly and say, we're here to receive whatever you have to give us. Salvation, heaven, eternal life. They are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They are not the result of our works. Our works are simply a response to God for the gift that he's already given to to us. Okay, so those are the lies. Remember, this is not an exhaustive list. There are more lies than just those, uh, but those are the really prominent ones. And they have been crafted by demons specifically to lead professing Christians away from the faith. So 1 Timothy 4, 6, and 7 says this. In verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul is saying, here's here's an antidote to all of these lies. Make sure that people know these things. Now, what are these things? Well, he's already said them. These things are this. Demons want to lie to you and through you to lead people away from the faith. That's like, they want to do it. You just need to know that a demon is waiting for you to like give ground on one of these places and say, okay, I'm all in. I'm going to go after that because I think I can lead people astray through that. That's what they are looking for. He's saying to Timothy, an elder in the church, be trained by the word of God and by sound doctrine. But here's the thing, church. I am not the only disciple maker in this church. And our elders are not the only disciple makers in this church. And Pastor Don is not the only disciple maker in this church. We are all responsible for bearing the load of disciple making, which means that your elders should not be the only ones immersing ourselves in Scripture and seeking to ensure that what we believe is the truth. God wants you to give his word to others. And that means that you have a responsibility to give the truth and not lies. So what? So what? Number one, uh, guarding from heresy is an all-church endeavor. So elders exist, uh, by the way, not to prevent every instance of heresy from creeping in. It's actually impossible for us to do because we cannot be in all places at all times. We exist to equip you so that 
when you instruct kids in crossroads and in children's ministry, and when you interact with neighbors and coworkers in your workplace or neighbors in your home, or uh, you tell people about the things of the faith, they, you need to make sure that you keep a close watch on the things that you tell others and that you ensure that what you give them is a pure gospel. And we, elders, exist to equip you to correct gently when you hear someone else deviating from these things. That gentle part is a very important part because it is the gentleness. Uh, People can take the things that I have talked about this morning and we can lift ourselves up in pride thinking, look, we know better and we're going to tell everybody who doesn't know as well as we know. And if we've done that, we've also missed a significant point of the gospel, right? We correct with gentleness. We uh, pursue with humility for the sake of winning the person back to the truth. So here's the thing. Uh, The five lies, uh, like I said, they're not the only ones that exist. There are other lies. So the question is, how can any of us be hoped, like hope to be prepared for dealing with lies that we haven't heard about yet? And we all, essentially, since we all have disciple-making responsibility, we all need to apply the principles that Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 6, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. When you go to the gym, you, you might notice that people are doing different kinds of exercises. And uh, some people really know what they're doing and some people don't really know what they're doing. And uh, you know what you don't want to do? You don't want to go to the people who don't know what they're doing and ask them, hey, I could use your help in training. I want to do things like you're doing it, right? You don't do things that way. Not all training is the same. And in fact, some training can hurt you instead of help you. So what equipment are you using to achieve your potential? Who are you getting your life skills from? Who are you listening to in your decision making? Who are you following in your belief system? Like this is so essential that Paul writes it to Timothy again in verse 15. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then he says again, persist in this. He said it like five times. Do this. Do this. Immerse yourself in these teachings from God's word. So if you hear me up here talking about lies that could be out there and and more than ever, and you don't know what to do and you feel ill-prepared, I just want to give you two significant next steps. Number one, immerse yourself in scripture. Just like read it, love it, Study it, seek to understand it, grab the logic. What is the person saying? What are they trying to accomplish, right? And number two, invite coaching from a mature brother or sister, right? There, there's great advantage in the body of Christ. I am who I am today because of the people who have poured into me and the people I was able to ask theological questions to and ask questions about, okay, this passage says this, this passage says this. How do these things work together? Find somebody to help you work through that stuff. A mature brother or sister to help you work through that. If you need help finding that person, come talk to me. I want to help you find that person. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save yourself and you're here. So these lies can send a soul, and maybe a soul that once seemed close to God, once professed faith, these lies, if somebody grabs onto them, they are able to send souls to hell. And we are fighting a battle that seeks to elevate truth and eliminate lies. So what number two? 
Whatever you have believed in the past or whatever even you have believed today, the true gospel is for you. Right? It is like the best news that exists. The gospel is not for the healthy and not for the righteous and not for the self-righteous. It is for the sick. It is for the people who know that they need healing and they need help. It is not for those who get it right, but it is for all of us who get it wrong. It is the gift of forgiveness and eternal life extended to you and to any who would say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Would you confront my thoughts and make them your thoughts? Would you confront my ways? and make them your ways. So if you have not placed your faith in Jesus alone for salvation, you can start today. And I would encourage you, don't wait a moment longer before you go to him and say, Jesus, I want my life to belong to you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for truth. I thank you that you are indeed the author of all truth and that you help us to understand what is true and what is false. Lord, let us not in our uh, grasping what truth is right and what truth is best to puff ourselves up in knowledge. Let us not become even self-righteous in what we know, but let us with humility seek to understand the things that you lay out for us and with humility carry the truth that you have given us to other people. Lord, so that we might shine our light in our actions and that we might shine our light in our words so that people would see the things that we do and the things that they would say and they would glorify our God who is in heaven. Help us to stay true to the gospel that you have laid out from before the foundation of the world. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.